of Luke, we find ourselves in chapter 5 and in verse 27. We're going to read verse 27 down through the end of the chapter, verse 39. The balcony is ready. After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he left all and rose up and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one, otherwise the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined." But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better. Let's pray. Father, grateful we are for this word today, more so than usual because the conclusion of it, Lord, is that we ought to have joy in our relationship with you. I pray that each of us would make a correct and accurate appraisal of our daily life with you, Lord, as to whether or not joy would characterize it. By the time we're done, that it would. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone who agreed said, amen. Jesus enjoyed himself, and it really bothered people. Not too surprising was the fact that his enjoyment of feasting with sinners bothered the Pharisees and scribes. More surprising was that his enjoyment of feasting with saints bothered some who were disciples. In the parallel account of this story in the Gospel of Matthew, it was the disciples of John the Baptist who themselves asked Jesus, quote, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? It bothered them that Jesus and his followers were feasting while they were fasting, There is something within us that wants to make religion difficult and depressing in order to prove our devotion. Fasting somehow seems more spiritual to us than feasting. When it comes to Jesus, we're not proposing religion. We're in a relationship with the living God. We should enjoy it more like a feast than a fast. You should be enjoying your relationship with Jesus in a way that bothers people, Sinners for sure, but even some saints you know should be bothered. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, you're a walking invitation to your unsaved friends to join the feast. And number two, you're a walking invitation to your saved friends 
to enjoy the feast. Let's start in verses 27 through 32 where we learn that you're a walking invitation to your unsaved friends to join the feast. In one of her poems, Amy Carmichael wrote this, I heard him call, come, follow, that was all. My gold grew dim, my heart went after him. I rose and followed, that was all. Would you not follow if you heard him call? Verse 27 says, After these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. Follow me was a favorite expression of Jesus. You encounter it several times in the Gospels. He was really, literally, a walking invitation. As he would be walking around the countryside and he'd see an individual and he would just say, follow me. Levi is another name for Matthew. They are the same person. He is the writer of the gospel of Matthew. And I will probably refer to him as Matthew rather than Levi because we are more familiar with that name. Matthew, by the way, means gift of God. These second names were common since several languages were spoken. Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. But they also remind you that when God calls you, radical changes occur. You're the same person, but you're also a whole new creation in Jesus Christ. And some of you have this testimony that after you got saved, some of your friends, they they couldn't really figure out where you were coming from. Who are you? You look like Gene. You talk like Gene. You kind of smell like Gene. Garlicky but there's something different about you. Now, I don't think tax collectors have ever been popular, but in Jesus' day, they were downright despised. Tax collecting was a franchise you could purchase from the Roman government, and so you would buy a tax franchise. Uh, you're, You're all familiar with franchises. I know you, like me, every time you see some new construction around Hanford, Hold your breath in anticipation that finally, in and out. (laughs) And then you watch and you wait and you think, well, I don't know. And then one day you drive down 12th Avenue and Lacey and you see Panda Express. (laughs) And you think... This is why Hanford is not a real city. <laughs> Maybe, uh, I don't know, you know. And I'm not even sure in and out by the way, as a franchise, they were all owner-operated for, for a while. I mean, they, they were owned, you know, they're Christian-run uh, and, and, uh, originally, and that's why you look at the bottom of the cup, and it has John 3.16 down there. Now, wait until the cup is empty, but uh, <laughs> I want to be clear about these things, you know. But, uh, you know, but you're familiar with the idea of a franchise. You, you know, if you want to you buy a franchise and, and, and put it up. And so this was a tax-collecting franchise, uh, H&R Matthew or something like that. You know, not, not to do taxes, but to collect ma- uh, taxes. You collected whatever was required by the government, and then you were entitled to keep anything over and above it as your profit. Your power of taxation was almost unlimited, And it was enforced by the Roman military. A Jew who owned a tax franchise was a traitor to his own country, despised among his own people. And so verse 28, he left all, rose up, and followed him. 
Matthew was already familiar with the ministry of Jesus in and around Capernaum. He knew that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins and the power to make you spiritually whole and healthy. He left all. He abandoned his tax franchise. Now, this may be a minor point, but I want to point out that Matthew wasn't a bad citizen. He didn't just leave his government job. He'd already paid Rome to own the tax franchise. And so this was at great loss to himself. I just like to mention that because sometimes Christians, they're not always the best employees. They're not always the best citizens, and we really ought to be, or we ought to at least strive to be so that we don't bring reproach on the name of Jesus. And so from the government point of view, it's like, hey, great. We gained from Matthew the money from buying the tax franchise. Now we'll sell another tax franchise. He wants to abandon his tax booth, all the more power to him. And, and it would have been a testimony, not a negative testimony, but a positive one that something amazing had happened in his life. In that moment, as he heard the invitation... As Jesus walked by, he realized it would do no good to gain the whole world if it meant losing your soul. He left all in order to gain everything. And so Jesus, the walking invitation, but sometimes, you know, Jesus got an RSVP from people. He would invite them, follow me, but they would give excuses why they could not. The rich young ruler comes to mind. He wanted to follow Jesus. Jesus said, well, yeah, far out. Follow me. All you have to do is sell everything that you own. And he didn't want to do it. He went away sorrowful. And there were others who Jesus called to discipleship, and they said, well, we'd like to follow you, Lord, but I need to bury my parents. And by that, in their culture, they meant, you know, I'm under my parents' authority, and I want to wait until they die, and I get their inheritance, and then I'll follow you. And so there were many who Jesus invited to follow him that had their excuses, but not Matthew. For him, gold grew dim, and his heart followed him. Verse 29, then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, and there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. Think of the events for which you might throw a festive banquet, a coming of age, graduation from high school or college, a wedding, a special anniversary, maybe your retirement. Your conversion is a far more important life event than any of these or any other. J.C. Ryle writes, and he says, It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is a passage from death to life. It is being made a king and a priest forevermore. It is adoption into the noblest and richest of families, the family of God. Matthew's friends were of the sordid sort. They were tax collectors, and I like this, others. The others would include the usual cast of characters, robbers, murderers, drunkards, prostitutes, every other kind of irreligious person that you could imagine. Matthew understood that his conversion and commitment to Christ was a cause for celebration. Life with Jesus was a feast to be enjoyed rather than a fast to be endured. And so he wanted to share this with those that he knew. And verse 30, it says, And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They didn't go directly to the Lord. They're starting to learn that they really didn't have much success talking to Jesus. He always turned their words back on themselves and confounded them. And so they went to the disciples, 
Now, there is a vast world of seemingly religious people who question everything that might add any enjoyment to your walk with God. They practice a self-righteousness of keeping their own rules and regulations, and then they try to project it onto others. You need to go to the Lord as an individual and to His Word about what you can and cannot do as a Christian. God has given you all things to enjoy, the Bible says. Just make sure you enjoy them in ways that glorify God and build up others in their faith. If you have those principles to guide you, then you can do whatever you want, and you'll find that whatever you want to do will be what God wants you to do. And and that's just the way it works. But still, even with that freedom and with those basic boundaries, there are always people who come along and want to restrict the boundaries yet further. And they, they don't want you to celebrate Christmas, and they don't want you to do this, they don't want you to do that. And, and they're just really joyless. And everything to them is a drag and a drudgery, and they're not happy being Christians unless they're unhappy. Well, I'd really like to do that, but I can't. Why not? Well, I'm a Christian. Okay, right. Now, the question of the Pharisees and scribes implied that they were too good. They were too spiritual to associate with sinners. Jesus' answer, it exposes them as self-righteous religious phonies. He said, verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Imagine for a moment you call your doctor get up tomorrow morning and your allergies are just, you just can't take it anymore. And the over-the-counter medicines are just not doing it. You need the latest nuclear-powered steroid <laughs> to uh, live here in the valley, you know, and stuff. And, and uh, something that comes in a, you know, a container that just, you put it in your refrigerator and it emanates throughout the house and your allergies are gone. So you call your doctor can tell I don't like allergies. But anyway, you call your doctor. Well, you know, whatever happened, all the medicine. I mean, how many years did I take, uh, gosh, what was it that's illegal now that kills you? The, you know, huh? No, not theophylline, but there's a bunch of those medicines. You know, hey, take this, sure. Oh, hey, don't take that. It kills you. But you can get it in Mexico. And uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, only kills you north of the border, I guess, but... So anyway, you call your doctor, you're struggling with allergies or something else, and you say, I'd like to make an appointment with the doctor, and they say, well, when are you available? Well, actually, they never ask you when you're available. Let's just pretend, you know. When are you available? Uh, I can come in any time. I'm sorry, we have no appointments. No, I can come in any time, day or night, months from now if necessary. Uh, We're not taking any appointments for the doctor. Well, why not? The doctor only sees well people. Oh, well, no, I'm sick. Exactly. He only wants to see well people because he's a doctor. And he worked hard to learn what makes a person well, and he doesn't want to be around sick people. <laughs> sick people might make you sick. Well, what am I supposed to do? Live in quarantine with other sick people. We can't help you. And now it's ridiculous because, see, if you're a doctor, uh, you know, I, I guess there's a very small minority of people who want to be a doctor because you can get rich, which really isn't true anymore. I don't know who gets rich in the medical community, but it doesn't seem to be doctors. Drug companies, maybe, who are making nuclear medicine. But anyway, uh, 
And, and, but if you want to you help people, you want to cure people, you want to discover the cure for cancer or whatever it is, and that requires that you spend a lot of time among sick people in hospitals and all. And so Jesus is saying, look, if you think you are spiritually whole and healthy, you should be knocking out yourself to be around sinners, to share with them how they too can become spiritually whole and healthy, the same way a doctor wants to be or it finds it necessary to be around sick people. And so he says in verse 32, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees could diagnose sin, but offered no cure. Jesus was offering the cure. We saw it in verse 20, forgiveness of sins. He called to sinners. They received the forgiveness of their sins that only God could give, and they repented, turning to God from sin with power now to say no to their sin. Matthew threw a banquet for his unsaved friends, and the word in the Bible here, great banquet, means just that, uh, just a phenomenal banquet. He spared no expense. Maybe we should hold conversion celebrations like Matthew. We could call them born-again brunches or my favorite, sinner's dinners. What do you think? And uh, this Wednesday night after our study, we'll be having our sinner's dinners for all you. And I, I don't know. Maybe we should throw parties. But at any rate, we should be like Jesus and be walking invitations to the unsaved. There should be a joyous, celebratory quality to our lives that lets the unsaved person know that a relationship with Jesus is more like a feast than a fast. You remember before you were a Christian, those of you who are saved, you thought becoming a Christian was a drag, that you had to give up everything that you would have ever enjoyed in life, and, and it kept you from really checking it out. Where did you get that impression? from the general culture which promotes that and from other Christians sometimes who make Christianity seem like a drag. The Apostle Peter would speak of a joy that was unspeakable and full of glory, 1 Peter 1.8. John wrote and he said, I'm writing that your joy may be full, 1 John 1.4. Even in your adversities and afflictions, and there are many of them, you are to, James said, counted all joy. Jesus himself promised you would experience trouble in the world, and then he said, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The only possible conclusion you can come to from reading the New Testament is that a Christian should be characterized by an overflowing, bubbling joy. There should be a spiritual joy about you that invites the unsaved to join the feast, but it's not just the unsaved that miss the point. You're a walking invitation to your saved friends to enjoy the feast. Christians can lack joy. We have somewhat of an example of that in the remaining verses. In verse 33, you read, Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Who are they? Well, it included the disciples of John because in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, you read this. Then the disciples of John, John the Baptist, came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? John the Baptist had been imprisoned by this time 
prior to his being imprisoned, he had pointed to Jesus and told all of his disciples to follow Jesus. And that was what they were attempting to do. The disciples of John, though, were having a hard time following Jesus. They were bothered by his feasting. And it wasn't just the feasting. It seemed that his whole approach to godliness was more joyous, if I can say this, less monk-like. They'd been following John the Baptist, who for his own reasons and his own purposes and that of God's had come out of the Judean wilderness having lived an ascetic life, eating locusts dipped in honey, wearing uncomfortable clothes, telling people to repent. But then he pointed them to Jesus. I want you to follow Jesus now. And it was a radical change for them because there was no fasting. It was just feasting and hanging around with sinners. And they couldn't hang with it. They were having a hard time with it. By the way, do you know there is no command to fast in either the Old or the New Testament? Don't get me wrong, people did fast, and fasting is an important spiritual discipline, but the only regular fast prescribed by God in the Bible was on the annual Day of Atonement, and even then it was only implied that you would fast. The Scripture says that they afflicted themselves, and it was interpreted to mean fasting. It was not directly stated. The context for the question they asked Jesus about fasting was not the Old Testament teaching. It was the Jewish tradition about fasting. Jewish tradition had come to require twice weekly fasts. I think it was on Monday and Thursday. And these disciples of John followed that practice. And so twice a week, if you wanted to be spiritual... The Bible didn't say, the Old Testament didn't say this, but if you wanted to be spiritual, we've decided that you have to fast twice a week, Monday and Thursday. When I was a kid growing up in the Roman Catholic Church, no meat on Friday. It's all right, we had pasta, <laughs> which is meat to me, but, uh, but no meatballs. And my mom and dad make some killer meatballs. And then you could eat fish. Okay, fish is a whole new group, not the meat group, I guess, you know. Fish is the meat group, is, is, is the fish group, and then there's the meat. So, you know, but there were these rules, and, and I'm just using it as an example. That's my life. There are rules that people come up with, and you think, okay, somewhere they must have told Moses that you can't eat meat on Friday. No. Somewhere it must say that fish isn't meat. No. Some guys came up with that, and that's what's happening here. It's like, you got to fast twice a week in order to be spiritual, and Jesus is just going around eating, and his disciples are eating, and there's no, uh, and, and then you think, well, how did they know they weren't fasting? Oh, you knew when people were fasting in the Old Testament in the day of Jesus, because we'll read some scriptures in a minute about fasting where people made it obvious that they were fasting. And so that's what the context really is. And so Jesus puts the issue into perspective with an illustration. He says in verse 34, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? Jesus, first of all, established that a relationship with him was like a marriage. It included a wedding banquet. It was to be joyous and enjoyed. These guys had never been to a wedding feast where you fasted. 
And you probably haven't either. Now, when my daughter got married and when my son gets married, I think that's a good idea, (laughs) just from a financial point of view. You're invited to the wedding, and afterwards, join us for our fast. (laughs) Hey, I'm, I'm down with that. That sounds good. But it just doesn't work, because what you'd end up with with people who would be fasting from giving you gifts. Hey, I'm going to really get into this fasting thing and not buy you anything. How's that? And I'm not going to wear even any clothes that require dry cleaning if you're going to be that cheap about it, so forget it. So weddings, I mean, you want to get together and have a good time, have a great meal, and and have that kind of fellowship. And so Jesus says, now, this is the kind of atmosphere that we have. And then this is so, I love Jesus for his, not just his insight, but the way that he tries to relate to people in in a way that shows his care for them. John the Baptist was famous for referring to himself, he says this in John 3.29, as the friend of the bridegroom. And he would teach his own, he would have taught his disciples, hey guys, I'm just the friend of the bridegroom. We are just the friends of the bridegroom. When the bridegroom, the Messiah comes, follow him. And that's what he told them to do. And so even in their own teaching, John had told them, hey, this thing is going to be a feast. It's not a fast. I might be fasting. I might be a guy that loves locusts. And that might have been God's path for my life because of all the imagery and things like that. But that doesn't mean that we fast twice a week like the Pharisees do to become more spiritual because this thing is a wedding feast. Nothing wrong with fasting. There are times fasting might be appropriate. And Jesus said in verse 35, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Jesus would be crucified and buried. For those several days, he would be taken away. Let me quickly add, however, that upon his ascension into heaven, he promised to send the Holy Spirit to permanently accompany and comfort us, and he promised he would never leave us or forsake us. This means there are no prescribed fasts. Fasting is not required. Here's the bottom line. Fasting does not make you more spiritual. Nothing you do outwardly, no work of righteousness can make you more spiritual. Fasting can be a fantastic spiritual discipline. Just keep it between yourself and Jesus. Jesus indicated that when you fast, you should appear joyful even so that folks don't know it. If anything, people say, man, Gene's in a really, really good mood today. He must be fasting. Just the opposite of what you would think. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 6. He says, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Don't fast on Thanksgiving. That, that's the idea. Can you imagine, hey, let's eat, let's thank God for, okay, oh, you're not having any? No, I'm fasting today. Man, you look weird. Yeah. Didn't comb my hair or in the case of a woman, didn't put any makeup on, just kind of sitting here enjoying my relationship with God by fasting. And people, you know, we'd laugh at that, but people think, whoa, how spiritual is that? Look at that, man. Guy's going to give up turkey and Gulliver's creamed corn and 
garlic. <laughs> Garlic's on every table. But anyway, Jesus said, you're going to fast fast, but don't let anybody know. In fact, have joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory, fullness of joy. That's the mark of a walk with the Lord. It should extend an invitation to even your saved friends. And so the real issue wasn't fasting. It was the traditions that had been developed about fasting and the attitude that keeping those traditions was necessary to either gain or maintain a right standing with God. Jesus told a parable, it says, and what he's doing is continuing in this same illustration. Verse 36, no one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. Now, the patched garment, the burst wineskin, and this refusal to even try new wine still relate to the wedding feast. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus would tell a parable about a great wedding feast that a king held for his son. Everyone was invited to attend, but you must be wearing a particular wedding garment that the king provided. Those who came in wearing their own garments were expelled to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth in outer darkness. In Scripture, a garment often represents your righteousness before God. Here's what it means. If you could be in heaven looking down at a human being, at the human race, and God said, I want to show you what human beings look like from heaven's point of view, you'd see them and they would be dressed, as it were, in the filthiest, raunchiest garments imaginable. Think of somebody who had fallen into a cesspool and had then just slept in their garments for 20 years without washing them. I could go on, but you get the idea. Actually, the words the Bible uses are much worse, but we're in mixed company, so I don't want to bring that up. You can ask me at the door. Always a little tantalizing tidbit. But, uh, and so if you could see yourself, if you could see the most righteous person I don't know, maybe you think it was Mother Teresa or somebody, some righteous person who did more for the human race than anybody else, had all these works, you know. If you could see that person from a perfect, heavenly, pure perspective, it, oh, man, oh, that person stinks. There's no way they're coming into heaven. And so then Jesus comes along, he says, here, here's what I do. When you accept me, I take all of that clothing and we just get rid of it. And I clean you up and I give you a robe of pure white righteousness. And now you're acceptable. You can come to heaven. And that's the, that's the illustration that the Bible uses to talk about what it means to be saved. Some disciples think that their traditions can make them righteous. They know they need Jesus, but to them, the Lord is just some small little patch on their own extensive good works, which they believe can make them acceptable to God. Hey, God, look at me. I fast twice a week. I tithe uh, of, you know, I mean, these Pharisees, they tithe of their uh, spices. So you'd go to the market and get some oregano, and you'd pour it out, and you would take 10% of your oregano. Can you imagine counting your oregano leaves? 
one for God, nine for me. I mean, these guys were nuts about this, thinking that they were adding little pieces of righteousness to their life that would be acceptable to God. Wine was an important beverage at weddings. Jesus' first miracle involved the changing of water into wine at a wedding. A wineskin was either an animal bladder or some kind of animal skin that was used to put in fresh, unfermented grape juice. Once that was reopened and air hit what was in there, it would begin a process of decay that would make that wineskin brittle. So if you put new wine, grape juice in there, it would create fermentation, which you didn't want, and then the brittle wineskin would burst and the wine would all be wasted. And so no one used old wineskins for fresh juice. Uh, And so this was just commonly understood. In Scripture, wine is contrasted or at least compared with the Holy Spirit. Paul says, be not drunk with wine, but what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so your body is like a container, a wineskin, as it were, for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the power to live out your life with Jesus. The external traditions of men cannot provide that power. Neither can he empower your self-righteousness. You must depend fully on Jesus, not trusting in your works to gain or maintain your salvation. And then there were those at weddings who just refused to drink the new, better wine. They represent all those who prefer their self-righteous traditions. And so this is all really profoundly simple. Religion is self-righteousness that keeps outward rules and rituals and regulations, You are to realize instead that you can have no righteousness. There are no works of righteousness you can perform to gain or maintain salvation. Instead, you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. He gives you a right standing before God, and He fills you with the power to live for God on a daily basis. The result has to be joy. Anybody who understands this is filled with overflowing joy. You will enjoy your walk with the Lord, and you will become a walking invitation to even saved people to enjoy the feast. You know, Christians, I don't want to go into this too much, but we just do have that tendency to make the Christian life as difficult as possible. We're not scribes and Pharisees, but if we're not careful, churches make their own rules based on their own traditions. You have to be baptized a certain way. You have to wear certain clothing. You have to worship on certain days. There are any number of extra-biblical, unbiblical, non-biblical traditions that we can come up with that, in a sense, say, if you do this, you're going to be so much more spiritual than the people who don't do this. And by doing this, you're going to uh, really increase your own righteousness. And then Jesus comes along and he says, yeah, you're just a guy dressed in filthy rags. You'd better depend on me. And when you do, I'll exchange your garment for my garment and then I'll fill you with the Holy Spirit so that you can keep God's law from within. Not by keeping outward rules and regulations, but by loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. It's a whole new radical way of living. And Jesus said, look, The best thing I can do to illustrate it is to say it's more like a a wedding than a funeral. And so quit living as if the Christian life was a funeral that people had to attend 
and start living as if it were a wedding feast. Jesus asked, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? Well, sadly, you can. And as I just said, Christians do that, and we tend more towards fasting than feasting. Daily life consists of doing things you don't want to do and of not doing things you want to do because you think it makes you more spiritual. I don't want to put a trip on anybody, but sometimes I think our neighbors and friends uh, who aren't Christians don't want to come to church because they know what a drag it is for you to go to church. You know, you, 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 we can come across as if we have to go to church rather than we want to go. It's really radical when somebody understands that And don't get me wrong, vacations are great. All the hobbies that you can have in the world are great. I'm not against those things. Please hear me in the right context. But generally, Christians, you know, if you're not on vacation or if you don't have anything special to do, you're going to church, let's say, on a normal basis. It really is an amazing thing when you think about it that with your free time, the time that you could do whatever you want to do on a Sunday morning, while your neighbor is outfitting his fishing boat or getting his RV ready or working on his hot rod or painting his house or doing whatever he wants to do or needs to do, that you're going to church. You're smiling and laughing and you're carrying your Bible. You can't wait to get there because God is going to talk to you there. The creator of the universe, the living God, is going to meet you there and he's going to help you raise your children and teach you things about what it means to be a family and how to get through the wilderness of this world. And when people really understand that, they'll put down their hobbies because they're only doing that stuff because their life is empty and meaningless. They go to work all week and they don't really enjoy it, or if they do, it's still stressful. Their families are falling apart. They don't know how to raise their children. They don't even know how to talk to their husband or wife. And they're looking for something, and they can't find anything that really helps them. And so they think, well, if I can't get any help, I can at least divert myself. I can have a hobby. I can do something I enjoy. And, and I don't even really enjoy this all the time, but it, at least it gets my mind off of what's really happening, and I'm going to do this. And when they see somebody, oh, man, yeah, hey, that's great. That's cool. I think that's neat. That's a neat car. But I don't have time for that right now because I have to go to church. I want to be where God is. He's going to meet with me there. Really? Yeah, come along. You can't imagine what goes on there. Well, what goes on there? I just told you you can't imagine it. (laughs) Come and see for yourself. And hopefully then when people do come, we would be a joyous, celebratory people. I'm not just talking about the kind of music or the way we present the Word. I mean just in in our countenance, that we would look like we actually enjoy being here instead of the pained looks that we sometimes... oh. And, and that we would communicate to people in every possible way what a joy it is to know Jesus Christ. As the great physician, Jesus offers sinners new life and spiritual health. As the bridegroom, He brings love and joy. He gives you a robe of righteousness and the new wine of His Holy Spirit. We are to simply invite sinners to join the feast and, if necessary, invite other saints to enjoy the feast. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that we would be able to take these things and uh, make them applicable and apply them to our lives. Uh, Lord, that we would know a joy unspeakable and full of glory, an overflowing joy, that we would 
read the Bible as if it were written that our joy would be full. And Lord, even in our adversities and afflictions, no matter how bad they are from a human point of view, from an earthly standpoint, that we would count them all joy, knowing that you are above them and that we are seated with you in heavenly places and that, Lord, you're going to take us through them with your presence. Lord, with Paul the Apostle, we want to be those people who say to others, none of these things moves me. Whatever happens in my life, and especially those things that are in the category of bad, they cannot move me from the joy of my salvation, the joy of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so, Lord, if we're needing it, fill us with your Spirit fresh and new right now. By faith, Lord, we ask that you would just fill us. And, Lord, it's not a matter of telling more jokes or goofing around more. It's a matter of a settled opinion in our heart that you are in control of our lives, accepting all things as being from your hand, and walking, Lord, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to do that, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. At the close of our services, as you know, we like to have some of our deacons down front. These guys are simply available for you to pray with you. Maybe you've got a physical need. You're requesting healing. We believe that God can heal in response to prayer. Um, Maybe you have a financial need you want to talk about. We'll put you in touch with the, the deacons. Uh, just any other type of prayer request that you'd like to bring before the Lord, that's available to you as the service closes. So as we begin to sing, just come on down, or as we're dismissed, come on down. May God bless and keep you, and may we know that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Amen? Amen. God bless you.